Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Kem Duduki. I'm sorry for the last name. He's the writer of the Sultans, which I'm holding it up for in the right here. The Rise and Fall. The, of the Ottoman rulers and their world. And as always, um, they ask, how did you come about writing, writing about the Ottomans? Absolutely, yes. So let's, let's start uh, in some sort of slightly weird places. So first of all, the reason why I wrote this book is because I guess I am part Ottoman. Uh, my father is Turkish. Uh, we'll explain what that means a little bit in a moment, but uh, it means that I grew up with stories from him about the Ottoman Empire. And then I grew up and I got a degree in archaeology and medieval history. And I realized that some of the things he was telling me was not necessarily agreed upon in actual history. And so you could say that the Sultan's book I've written is almost like a very gentle rebuttal to all my father's stories as I was in your face up. to your father yeah, you're not I, I wouldn't quite say in your <laughs> face, but that, thanks Erlen. um but yeah I I actually credit him right at the beginning it's sort of dedicated to him the most magnificent uh Ottoman since Suleiman is is what I say there mm. but um I think perhaps a good place to start because I know you want to go through the uh the actual uh, mm. Ottoman sultans is um, actually to start with what is a Turk. So I mentioned that my father was a, a Turk. And so you have the Republic of Turkey, which most people know about, but the Republic of Turkey was founded in 1922. If you looked on a map in 1300 or in 500 BC, there was no place called Turkey. It's, uh, it's a sort of a, an artificial creation after World War One, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Um, so literally, it's had its 100th birthday this year. So it means that today you have a new country that needs to talk about its past. So they tend to pretend that everybody was Turkish in the Ottoman Empire. And they absolutely weren't. Like in the Roman Empire, not everybody was Italian. You've got different cultures, different nationalities, different Mm. religions, uh, different languages even being spoken. Um, But it was also a common mistake during the Ottoman Empire. You would frequently get accounts in, let's say, the Renaissance era of Italy being attacked by Turkish pirates. It's like, no, they were pretty much guaranteed not to have been Turkish. They could have been almost any other nationality, Mm. Greek, Serbian, Albanian, whatever, Syrian. Um, But, you know, they were all under one particular flag, one particular authority at that time. So the reality is that if you're trying to look for Turks, they do exist in the world today. There is a place called Turkmenistan, but the, the Turks, things like the Seljuk Turks uh, from the, the Crusader era, these Turks existed, but they came from the Far East, from the Central Asian steppes. 
when they came over at the end of the Roman Empire, they were called the Huns. Uh, when they came over in the 1200s, they were called the Mongols. But the Mongols, Huns, Magyars, uh, the um, and the Turks were all the sort of Central Asian people, the steppe nomads, very good with horses. And that is not what a person in, in the modern Republic of Turkey looks like. You know, they look kind of Greek or kind of Italian because of all the interbreeding in, in uh, the Mediterranean. So actually, no, Turkey is not the place full of Turks today, and it wasn't full of Turks 500 years ago either. Much to my father's disgrace, I must say. He, he was very upset when we did the DNA results, and it proved that we were basically part Bulgarian and part Arab. Uh, you know, that that mixture makes complete sense from the context of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but he seemed to think that he was almost like a direct descendant of uh, Osman himself. So something that um, you, I wanted to bring up, and we talked about this before the recording as well, but you said that they rely a lot of Ottoman history for Turkey. And you can see this in media today. There's a show about Abdul Hamid II. There's a show about Osman uh, Osman's early youth called Ethel about his father. I, I, I screwed off that name, but you know, you know, and I don't do that a lot in this episode. I have feel like, but you know, there's a lot of media around Ottoman history, and in the episode about Anna Mikhail as well, when when we talked about Celine the Green, we he said we talked about how he of Edrigan, he named a bridge after Celine the Green, so. He, they do really rely a lot on Ottoman history for Turkish history. Absolutely. I mean, there are some people that call um, Erdogan uh, like the the new sultan. You know, he there is and a he book is titled that that name. Yeah, I think exactly. Yeah, and that's clearly what he's going for. But weirdly, I think that you know, in Norway, if some, I mean, ha, ha, question for you: if somebody sort of said that they were the new Eric the Red or Sven mm. Forkbeard or something like that, would that go down well with Norwegians, or would that be seen of we're we're past? He's, I'm not too familiar with him to be honest, but I would think people would look weird at it. Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't think people would. Who uh, the fuck is that guy? I mean, th- there was a, in 2011 there was a terrorist attack in on Utøya, which was. Horrible! It was massacre of young politicians. Yes, well, yes. If you so remember. sorry to hear about that. And, yep, yep. Uh, and the guy's favorite hero was Sidi Yusufar, who traveled to the First Crusade. That was the guy's favorite hero, Anders Bering Breivik's favorite hero. So you can see there are some people trying to resemble something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, there are pe- there are lots of people around the world who take the wrong lessons from history. Mm, exactly, yeah. And so if you Google Sigur Yusufar, who was, and I have definitely planned to make an episode on him later because he was, we're kind of a little derailing right now, but uh, <laughs> I want nothing to, wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. But like I want to say, because he was set the precedent for kings traveling, he was the first king traveling to the Crusades that another king, like Barbarossa and Richard III, for example, the mention of you, they would follow his example because, because he set the precedent no, yep. for. King is following to the crusade to Jerusalem to do a holy war. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So obviously, some of that holy war is sort of put in my book because mm. the you know the, the question is uh, there is the story of we keep mentioning Osman. We've mentioned it off- offhand, and we've obviously mentioned it before the recording as well. Who is Osman? Why do we keep mentioning him? Because, because he is the yeah. f- the first person to he is the dad. 
the father of all of these other rulers that will go on to be Ottoman sultans. Now, to be technical, the first few rulers weren't actually sultans. They were Ghazis or emirs and, uh, you know, they had other titles. But, you know, give it a few generations and it's big enough that they can start calling themselves sultans of an, of an empire. But what's unique about the Ottoman Empire compared to, let's say, the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire was ruled by many different families. The Ottoman Empire was ruled not quite father-son, father-son. There's a few uncles in there as well. But you could absolutely draw a straight line from Osman in the 1300s all the way through to the 1920s. It's, you know, you have this unbroken chain of the same family. Osman can also be translated into Arabic as Ottoman, which is where we literally get the name Ottoman Empire. It's named after Osman, the founder, and that is absolutely accurate. Because Not again, a guy named Otto, conveniently. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I guess we 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 should because we everyone calls him Osman. We should call it the Osmanli Empire, mm. but that's never going to catch catch mm. on. I mean, you draw the respect that though that they had one dynasty throughout the entire reign of their empire. That like we talked about the Romans and that Julio Claudian dynasty only lasted zero, yes. and then we get a year with five emperors, and that's a continuing thing in the Roman Empire, like you said. But you draw the respect them for that, that they do have one line of dynasty all the way until the 1923 when they fell apart. That's really impressive. But... Yes. Now, the the um, I guess this might be an opportunity to talk because I know we're going to sort of come on to it again. But how were they able to do it? All these other empires, like, you know, some of it's political. Nero wasn't a very good ruler. Mm. But you also get some of these sort of kings or emperors where they just don't have any male heirs and, and things like that. Um, and the reality is they that had... That was something har- the Ottomans weren't lacking, to be fair. No, no. <laughs> they, they, they had harems. And, and so this is an area to talk uh, about slavery. So slavery is going to pop up multiple times. The Ottoman Empire is, shall we say, well known for its slavery, but it is worth pointing out that slavery was just around the world in all cultures and religions and civilizations up until basically the 1800s. That's the time when we work out that owning other human beings is not a good idea, which obviously we can all agree is not a good idea. Slavery is bad. I'm, I'm saying that. But there are different types of slaves. And aren't in the modern world, though, I'm, gonna, go I'm just going to go on a limb here and say, aren't sure. contracts and with an agent contracts with something kind of like owning someone like you? Oh, well, you know, you... <laughs> I'm just you saying can argue that in court. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing is, they, they had harems uh, and who what who were the girls in the harems? And the answer were, you, you know, according to Islamic law, Muslims cannot be slaves. So what did they do? They got Christian girls to be in these harems and they were converted to Islam. Now you could then technically say, well, they're now Muslims, they can't be slaves, but the Ottomans would have said, shut up. You know, this is, they, they were originally Christian. I mean, this, this was a thing in the, not just Ottoman that you mentioned, this was in the Umayyad, or as far as from back from the Umayyad Caliphate. Oh, the, absolutely. Uh, every Caliphate basically had this. Uh, yeah, and and same for all the various um, sort of like Islamic powers in in the Iberian Peninsula and sort of Spain and Portugal as well. Yes, this was absolutely standard practice. Um, but here's the thing: it's like you know, you are a 16 year old Serbian girl. Uh, you have two choices: you can be a free woman. The year is let's say 1500. You can be a free woman. You're definitely not a slave. But what are your actual 
life opportunities like in 1500. You'll probably marry a Serbian farmer. You'll probably, you know, have eight children. You'll never leave any further than the, the little village that you live in. You might end up dying of starvation or childbirth or rampaging armies coming through your area. It's not going to be a great life, but you are free. Or you, you, can, become, you can become the wife of the sultan, the, the slave of sultan, and perhaps even first. Even new birth to future, so so exactly yes. Now, obviously, this stuff becomes a bigger deal later on in the Ottoman Empire, as you know, because you read the book. But yeah. you know, look, look at it this way. Okay, um, if you turn up in the harem, uh, yeah, you are now probably going to have to sleep with somebody that you've only met once before. But you get three meals a day. You get taught how to read and write and write poetry and musical instruments, and you have guards to protect you from the outside world. It's not the worst gig in the world, to be honest. Now, again... Considering the era, that is. Considering the time that yeah, they the lived other in. options that women had in, in 1500s or 1300s wasn't great for anybody, really. Um, so, and we're going to come back to him later. But And, and again, I brought this up earlier, but in, Alan, in our episode about Alan McCall, again, we talked about Salim, the first mother, who actually, I mean, the yes. urban era, so I don't, I don't remember her name. But she was actually quite intelligent. She built several sick hospitals for where she governed with Salim the first. And you yeah, see so that a lot of these are intelligent women who do a lot yeah. of good things for when they come into the harem and then they get educated and they get an opportunity they never had before. But bringing this sort of together with the Turkishness thing, so you've got Osman, who definitely is a Turk, and he turns up with 300 horsemen and he takes over this tiny little town called Soat, in modern-day Western Anatolia. It's really the middle of nowhere. Even today, it's nothing. But the point is, he may, be, may have been Turkish, but if his, if his son is like, you know, let's say, we, we have no idea what the ethnicity of these girls were other than the fact that they were, were Christian. But if every single sultan's mum is not Turkish, that means, you know, there are records of some sultans having to dye their blonde yeah. beards brown and, or dark, uh, you know, or black. You know, it's so, Erland, you know, chances are you're about as as, as Turkish, <laughs> in inverted commas, as Abdulhamid II or someone like that. Right, yeah. you know, just, they, they've actually got the, D, the DNA is so mixed up. But of course, in the sort of patriarchal society they lived in, if daddy is a is a Turk, that means you are a Turk. And mm. and that's the way it goes all the way down. Yeah. So let's begin with how does it how does it go for us with these three other archers? Because <laughs> and he does go he does he does what we talked about earlier of record. He does quite well actually. He does he does uh, goes to the weakest areas, like we talked about earlier. And so, is that the yes? Yeah, so, so, so there is this sort of myth, if you like, the, the the image of the Ottoman Empire. If people have even heard of it, it's like, oh, they're the Muslims taking trying to take over Europe. That's mm. while it is technically true, that's not what was going on by then. By the thirteen hundred, by thirteen hundred, the weakest power in the east of Europe and into the Middle East was easily the Byzantine Empire. It was a shadow of its former self. It had already collapsed once under the Fourth Crusade, but had managed to recover a bit. And so what Osman was doing was picking a fight with the weakest opponent, which makes complete sense when you've only got 300 men. And basically and so, what, what, what Ottomans would later be known as the sick man of Europe, that was Byzantium at the time, right? Yeah. They were the sick man of Europe, Europe yeah, basically. It, it, it took the Ottomans another 500 years, but they took over the... the, the mm. uh, 
you know, the, the place of the Byzantine Empire of just being a completely spent force. But we're obviously at the t- other end of it right now. And so, yeah, Osman, we know almost nothing about him. He minted some coins. That's it. That's the only physical evidence of him. But because his son, Orhan, built on daddy's initial successes, and because you then get Murad and the others building and building and building, Osman goes from being a completely obscure little uh, warlord in a in the dead end part of an unfashionable bit of, of Anatolia, and uh, he suddenly becomes this person of more importance um, and because of what's happened later on. Now, the other thing I know you want to talk about is the story about him and uh, and the tree sprouting from his navel. Yeah. So, so there is this wonderful story that he that osman falls asleep one night and he and he's lying there and and as i said a tree literally grows out of his belly button his navel and it shades him from the sun and it's this mighty tree and he's very confused by this god damn it i just want to get some tan (laughs) yeah yeah for starters you're ruining my tan here but um, (laughs) but he then goes to like a local mystic and the mystic explains that he's just dreamed that he's going to be the founder of this great empire this sounds great however the earliest recorded example of this story coming coming out is a hundred years after he died so this is a great example of an empire beginning to grow, beginning to feel more confident, needing to sort of show that the, the the beginnings of this wasn't by accident, that it was almost divine, that it was, you know, inshallah, God wills it sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, it's, so it's one of these things like King Arthur in England and, you know, there are other, other kind of nation-building myths and legends, uh, George Washington never telling a lie and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's all harmless, but it does tell you something about the society that invented it. And they again, didn't we think... talked about this before, that it's kind of like the Romulus and Remus of the origin of Rome kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, the Romans needed to, you know, no country wants to say, hey, we happened by accident. So mm. instead it's like, oh, it was divine providence. Yeah, Romulus and Remus, it was all, you know, they are suckled by the wolves, which is obviously yeah. that's impossible. Um but, you know, it's a good story and everybody kind of believed it in, in the Roman Empire and everybody kind of believed the story about Osman in the in the Ottoman Empire. But, yeah, they had other things to do day by day. And I forgot to say it in the beginning, but this will be a two-parter because it's, it's kind of a huge topic, the Ottoman Sultans. We, and uh, we want to go through as narrowly as possible here. But it's something we have to do. Again, it's kind of spoiler alert, but it's... Uh, it's uh, quite a few. There's just two Osmans, and we discussed this as well. That there's just two yeah. Osmans in the entire reign, which is kind of surprising. We got like we got fourteen Louis and eleven. Oh, there's more. There's more Louis actually. Yeah, six, six, and, sorry, and sixteen. Even had ten 16, Yeah, sixteen <laughs> Louis. Sorry, I'm I sixteen <laughs> Louis and four, five, six Arthur's in, or what? Or in the Henry? Sorry, the four, five Henrys in the England and. We just got two Osmans in yeah. the Ottoman Empire. That's quite I, fascinating, actually, to me. And as you said, you know, you get you go up a few numbers and things like Murads and Mehmets, mm. but not many. You know, yeah, you you yeah. never get to ten, and it's the same family. Now, look, I know you sort of like ask, it's like, so why is that? The simple answer is nobody knows for sure. But I think what is my theory is that because it's the same family, there's never an attempt, there's never a need to sort of say I'm. I'm legitimate. 
Whereas when you get people like um, Henry VII of England, he had to fight a civil war and he had a terrible claim to the throne. He was the, he was the guy who should have lost the battle. He had the weaker claim to the throne, but he got lucky. He won. He, you know, Richard III died in the battle. Henry VII gets to become king, but Henry, oh, you know, Henry goes back centuries and Henry V was a great warrior. And so mm. Henry's a great name. Also, another one in, in England is Edward. Edward was the go-to name for a thousand years, but because the most recent Edward, Edward VIII, sort of deposed for decided to stop being king we'll never have another edward um and so i think i my i think the best theory is because they're all from the same family they didn't feel the need to sort of keep replicating other people's names um but we we don't know for sure it's just kind of interesting how they don't choose to do this to me and i think it's something i don't think a lot of like i said it's so it's what names is fascinating in in itself uh, in dynasties like I think, but anyway, let's move on to the second sultan as we as we talked about. There is not much much literary literary writing writing about us Os- the first. I'm sorry, um, no. but the second one there is quite a bit more. We know way bit more about him than we did about Osman. Yes, uh, yes. So. We, we now move on to, to Orhan, who is the son of, of Osman. And he is unusually, because later on we're going to see they did love killing, killing each other, the brothers. Uh, but he worked incredibly effectively with his brother, Aladdin. Now, as soon as you say Aladdin, and I'm going to tell you he's the Grand Vizier, this fills people's minds with exotic tales of things like Al- Aladdin or whatever. You put all that out of your mind. Grand Vizier simply is, in in modern terms, prime minister. So you've got Orhan, who is the military leader. He's the guy coming up with the vision, but Aladdin is making it all work. He's he's putting it all together, and he's beginning to grow a sort of a central authority, a system that will turn into the Ottoman system. And these two brothers worked incredibly effectively together. I, so I do think so- you write about this as well in your book, that they, they, he kind of accepted he wasn't really too interested in being the ruler. He wanted to be an administrator, more like. He, he yeah, was, that- wasn't too interested in ruling the empire. Not, not that maybe not empire yet, but let's call it that for simplicity. That he wasn't, wasn't really in, interested in ruling the empire, was he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was clearly a talented administrator, and administrators aren't necessarily talented generals. Uh, And whereas later on, if you are the sultan, you don't want anybody challenging you, and you already have an administration up and running, and that's why you can start killing off brothers. But let's let's not go there yet. But these two worked really well together, and actually, they get their first big win for the for the Ottomans. They capture the city of Bursa which was uh, an important city for the Byzantine Empire. So now they've just lost one of their mo- most important cities. But something it that did... we forgot to say is that it took quite a while. to take Yes, it in. did. Yes. This was not quick. Uh, this is not like the siege of, uh, of 1453 of Constantinople. They still had their horse archers, and therefore the, the best they could do was surround the city and try and starve it out. So it took about nine years uh, of siege to, to get that to work. And then... Um, even at the end, there wasn't a big epic battle. Instead, they basically paid off the local uh, Byzantine administrators to just let them in. There was no massacre. There was no epic last stand. Um, but it worked. And they get their first big win. And Bursa becomes important. It becomes the second capital of the Ottoman Empire. And it's the first proper capital. This is where they start burying dead sultans. Osmond is not buried in Soat. 
He's buried in in Bursa, as are all of the uh, Ottoman sultans leading up to uh, the siege of Constantinople. It becomes kind of um, even when they move on from uh, from Bursa to another city in in modern day Greece called uh, Erdene. Well, actually, it's still technically just inside the um, the European bit of Turkey. But yeah, so Erdene is uh, is the next capital after Bursa. But Bursa is kind of the capital city for a few generations. Erdene um, is Adrianople previously called, right? Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So where did they go on from after capturing Bursa? Because they want to, obviously they want to expand their empire. And how did they expand and expand? And they do, the... yes, ab- absolutely. But of course, this captures the attention of the Byzantine emperors, and we get uh, one of uh, one of them called Andronicus the Third, and he raises an army. Now it's not, you know, if we're talking about the Western, sorry, the Eastern Roman Empire of the of the Byzantine Empire in the year 500, they would have been able to produce 20,000 elite troops and it would have been awesome. Instead, Andronicus, much diminished in his power, he managed to pull together a few thousand troops, most of them are mercenaries, he can't even get his own guys to fight for him. He meets uh, meets, uh, Orhan in battle, but uh, what happens though is that the the, the guys actually, um, you know, they, they know each other's tricks. So um, in case of Andronicus, he knows that the horse archers are going to sort of drive forwards. They're going to do fire their arrows and then they're going to sort of like do a fake retreat. He doesn't fall for it. And so and again, like, sides... like we talked about before recording, this was kind of a Mongol tactic. Yes. Right? This was one of the Mongols' favorite early tactics during Genghis Khan's era, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. So when, when, yeah, the horse archers and their feigned retreats, you could say that's classic Mongol, that's classic Attila the Hun, and it's also classic uh, Turks in this situation, the uh, Ottomans. So this is all working quite, uh, quite well for them. But Andronicus and, and other generals from the Byzantine Empire have seen this tactic so many times they don't fall for it. And so neither side really gets an advantage until towards the end of the day, um, Andronicus gets minor wound, uh, presumably from an arrow. And, uh, but, th- but the thing is though, the soldiers start talking. And so a minor wound turns into a wound, turns into a mortal wound, turns into the emperor's dead. And so they all break up and they all start running away. And so Andronicus made no mistakes until right at the end when his, through gossip, basically, his army disintegrates. And at that moment, when they break formation, perfect time to send in the horse archers and it turns into a massive defeat for Andronicus. He manages to get back to Constantinople. He gets back alive. Turns out he's not dead. No, he's definitely not dead, it turns out. (laughs) Um, But, but... Um, that's the last time the the Byzantines have the capability of sending an army into Anatolia to try and stop the the Ottomans. It's not obvious at the time, you know. Everybody assumes they'll be back again, but actually, through historical perspective, we know they never get their act together to do that ever again. So, with Orhan, it's a time of like um, expansion and and consolidation as he's beginning to put his own unique stamp on this area. It's not quite yet an Ottoman Empire, but it's going in that direction so how when did they become an empire when can we officially call them an empire i think it's probably uh, uh it's it's probably sultan number three uh once we get there then then it's just reached that critical mass of um it, it's now big enough now i know one of the other ones things you want to talk about and this is where we can absolutely start talking about them is the janissaries yes so this is where we again have to talk about slavery and again have to say not everybody was turkish so What's happening again 
if you're the girls, you might end up in the harem. What they're looking for is healthy young boys. But again, they've got to be Christian because they're going to be enslaved as the Janissaries. Um, but the Janissaries, if there's one thing people know about the Ottoman Empire, it's the Janissaries are the sort of elite troops. And this is true, but they're not Turks. Uh, they're Christians. So they're probably things like, um, uh, well, they're definitely not Muslims. They could be Jews as well. So they could be, again, sort of Albanians, Greeks, uh, Serbians, uh, Bosnians, etc. There are lots of different uh, nationalities. Uh, and so these uh, young boys are brought into the Janissaries. They are converted to Islam and they then have to serve in the army. But the good news is that if you do a good job, you're going to go up the ranks. It's a merit, I'll say that in English, a meritocratic organization. If you do well, you will get promoted. You compare that to what's going on in Europe, where it, you, the people who run the armies are the people who own the land. And, and you can be the best knight in the world. You're never going to go up uh, yeah. because you, you're born to the wrong family, basically. So it's a really efficient system. And you will get to retire. And if you do get to retire, and this happens for centuries, you probably are going to end up being an administrator for an area. Um, so there's, something uh, that I want to bring up though, before you go on uh, is that the, the, this is an entirely new Ottoman invention. It has happened before, and you had the Mamluks as an example of yep. this. So why, why does the Janissaries succeed there? Why don't they go in revolt like the Mamluks did with the with the Abbasid Empire and then form their own, own empire? So where why why does the Janissaries succeed, whereas the Mamluks were a complete disaster. Well, Not I necessarily think, disaster, the, but, you know, yeah. for the Abbasids. Disaster for the Abbasids, more or less. Look, you raise a really interesting point. Again, this goes back to the, the slavery conversation of if it was so awful for them and they're the military, it should have taken them three months to get trained and then just turn on uh, on their yeah. masters and then take it over. It, basically like the Mamluks did in Egypt. Um, but it la- this system lasts for centuries, for about 450 years, because they can basically see that they're going to get rewarded. Um, and again, I, th- I think this is an opinion. I think they just like everybody else, because the Ottoman family is so ingrained to the empire, it doesn't even occur to people that we need to get rid of them. And, you know, there are rebellions and revolutions and you know, there's quite often sort of like political, if there's political grumbling, it's usually coming through the Janissaries. But the first thing an Ottoman sultan will do is when he becomes sultan is he will pay off the Janissaries. He'll give them the gold and goodies. The Praetorian Guards. Of, exactly. Of the Very similar to the Praetorian Guard of ancient Rome. And this works fine for like 300 years while the empire is growing. But when the empire starts shrinking, then they don't have as much money to go around. And the, the eventually the Janissaries get disbanded because they're more trouble than they're worth. But they're disbanded. They don't sort of revolt and fight to the last man. So, again, this is an example where, yes, these people are technically slaves. But the reality is they're probably doing better in their lives than they would have been if they'd just been left to work on their farms. And indeed, the, the, perhaps the most famous Janissary of all time is the best-known architect in in the Ottoman history is a guy called Sinan, and he was a Janissary. So we don't know exactly where he was from, except we can tell you that he must have been Christian, and he definitely wasn't a Turk, and yet he's building epic mosques like the Suleymaniye and is considered one of the greatest Islamic architects of all time, Uh, a guy who's technically a slave. So something that I want to bring up as well is that, I don't know if this was... uh 
was from earlier on with the creation of invasion of the Janissaries, but they were the families were as well taken care of if a Janissary fell, right? They, Absolutely. So it was yeah. kind of, well, wasn't as bad as it sounds like to, to be a Janissary in, well, in a sense. In in the cold conversation of historians, you're absolutely right. But if you, I mean, the the asking for these young boys, um, it has a technical name which I'm not going to bother going into. Uh, but it's it was literally called the blood tax by some people, and indeed, you will get today Greek scholars because the memory of the Janissaries. I mean, there's nobody alive today who's ever been a Janissary, but the the the, the sort of like the social awareness of our Greek boys were taken away by these evil Turks and forced to fight in the Janissaries that they still will call it in schools like a blood tax. Um, but you're quite right. You know, it's um, it is more complicated than that. It was a pretty good job, actually. And there are examples, many examples of families hiding their boys, but just as many examples of, bo- of families going, take him. You know, I got too many boys. He's strong. You know, take him, and we're going to get looked after by the the state after that. So, it, it, you know, it's the Ottoman Empire. If all it did was just take and take and take, it would have fallen in the first hundred years. But it was obviously building society as well. Something that and the Muslim families later on as well that tried to sell their their boys again into. Janissaries as well, didn't they? Later, that's later yeah, on. Yeah, later yeah. on. Yeah, I mean that shows you how popular it was. No, I, I'm not that Muslim. Go on, take take little Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, off you go. It's a bit like in the in the um, Christian era of the gladiatorial games. Christians were, you know, who obviously weren't slaves. They weren't pagan slaves. Actually, were happy to sort of like try their luck in, as gladiators. You know, there are sometimes there are these dangerous opportunities that for young poor men that have nothing else to do. Why not? You know, it's, 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 I guess it's, you're more likely to win than the lottery, um, but it is danger, more dangerous than the lottery as well. Mm. So let's move on. So how, how did it run? How, how successful did it come the Janissaries? Early on, quick, did it come successful quickly or did they? Does it take time to become this elite force of the Ottoman Empire? It takes a generation to become an elite force. But the other critical thing is we've been talking horse archers, horse archers, Mm -hmm. horse archers. These are infantry. They are elite infantry. They start off with bows and arrows, but as soon as firearms become a standard thing, they are uh, they've got firearms and they are considered by Western armies really good shots. The other thing is that they are a bit like horse archers are lightweight cavalry versus the heavy knights of, of Europe. It's the same thing with the infantry. The Janissaries, Janissaries generally don't wear a lot of armor. They'll have a small shield. They'll maybe have a steel helmet, but the, most of their clothing is silk. Um, and they are, are known for their huge plumed helmets and uh, their, their military bands, the first military bands in history, me, you know, men marching in time to sort of like music is from the Janissaries and not I from something was, in the West. I just want to add, I'm sorry for interrupting you again, but sure. some, we forgot to mention that this would be the first standing army since the Roman Empire fell in... In Europe, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, this this is... It's not exactly revolutionary, but it's it's it, it's it's an, an innovation not seen for like you know 500 years mm. or, or longer, really. So it, it is... It is um, and it's a sign that the Ottoman Empire is now 
a formidable state-run operation. You know, this isn't now just 300 horsemen making it up as they go along. They now have, you know, the administration to make it work. They've got the, they got the communications network to make the sort of like tithes uh, operate as well. Uh, it, it's, it's very, very, it, it's very sophisticated now. And we're probably getting to the point where the Ottoman territories are probably better run than most parts of Europe. So let's talk about the next Sultan because we have to chat with more on this is a two-parter and we we have a lot of Sultans together. We've got six hundred years of history here. <laughs> so let's talk yeah, about Murad the first and as you said we would capture Erdin. So is this when we start to see that does he, is he the one that started to kill his brothers that he doesn't want competition? Yes. So we, we now start to get the uh I I feel threatened, so therefore I'm going to start killing my, my brother's yeah. uh, situation. This was to go on for centuries. And, and the best way to look at it, look at it is Game of Thrones. Uh, because if you, um, it, 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 I mean, it happened. It didn't really start formalizing until perhaps a bit after uh, Murad, but uh, we get the civil war, which I think we're going to have to come on to pretty quickly. But anyway, yes. Um, but we now got, um, uh, Adrianople Erdene, uh, which is now, you know, that was a major city in mainland Europe. So we've now got the Ottomans heading across the Dardanelles um, and the Hellespont, and we're now into what we would consider Europe proper. Um, but they needed assistance. Uh, you know, the Venetians and Genoans were trading with both the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire. They're happy to make money anywhere. And their their was, policy it, was kind of like you trade first and religion after, right? Absolutely. That's, let's face it. Isn't that the best way to yeah. do, to, to do trade? Yeah. So, um, it was, you know, it wasn't some great Ottoman armada that got them across the sh- shores, but Christian Italian vessels that was doing this stuff. Um, so yeah, you're, you're seeing that the, the Ottomans are having, you know, they are evolving. They are improving. You know, they started off with a horseman. Now they got the Janissaries. You know, they've now got a decent sized capital. Now, ooh, now we've just won another major city. They've already taken, uh, other, um, uh, important cities like, uh, Nicaea, which is, uh, nowadays Izmir. Um, uh, uh, so, um, you know, there are lots of other, you know, they are growing and expanding, but I don't want to just talk, uh, you know, just very briefly. We keep saying Byzantine because that's the one yeah. that uh, that we all know. But they're also fighting these local Muslim Turkic warlords as well. They are not just going for the Christians. They're going for anybody who's sort of on the edges of their expanding territory. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you're kind of weak enough, um, or, you know, we think we've got a chance with you, they'll go for you. Um, they could be, they, well, they are expanding eastwards into central Anatolia as well. But basically that's, that's, it's a lot of desert there. So you're going to be more interested in the city states around the modern day uh, area of Greece heading towards Constantinople, but not quite there yet. So, so with, with Murad, you, you, this is what you've got, um, uh, going on there. And then uh, you've got the, uh, you know, sort of fast forwarding a little bit. We start pushing into the Balkans. And then in the late 1300s, we've got the Battle of Kosovo. Now, this is incredibly important to anybody who's listening to this that's Serbian. They know all about the Battle of Kosovo. In fact, you might have even heard of the area of Kosovo, which is to this day Muslim. Uh, The Battle of Kosovo is is almost sacred if you're Serbian. So this is where the Serbs fight the Ottomans. We're now at the, the late 
uh, 1300s. And it is an absolute uh, bloodbath. It is very rare for medieval chronicles to talk about heavy losses on both sides. And it's almost impossible to find another battle where both leaders of both sides are killed during the battle. But the um, And so because of this, at the end of the day, both the Serbs leave the battlefield and the Ottomans leave the battlefield. Um, and it's there, you know, so the Serbs talk about how they held back the tide of, of Muslim invasion. And technically it's true. But the reality is the new Serbian king is a baby and the new Ottoman sultan is Bayezid Yildirim, better known as Bayezid Thunderbolt. And he is a great warrior. And so the, and the Ottomans can simply take this this bloodbath more in their stride. They have more men, they have more resources. The Ottomans rebuilt, the Serbs couldn't. So the Battle of Kosovo is the big breakthrough of getting the Ottomans into Europe, scaring the rest of Europe about, oh my God, there's this new Muslim power and it just seems to be unstoppable. Um, and so it's really... So, the kind um, so of pairing you- a new Battle of Tours kind of thing, right? Exactly, yes. Really, yeah, that's a really good example. It's sort of like, oh, the Muslims are pushing into... Uh, in, in and And they're right. Um, but... And, and Bayezid is this amazingly energetic. When you sort of think about a kind of Genghis Khan, that type of person, he's that sort of leader. Uh, Bayezid Yildirim means literally Bayezid Thunderbolt because he was very good at attacking fast. However, what saves, uh, what saves Europe or Eastern Europe from further Ottoman incursions actually comes from a completely unexpected area, uh, the Far East where you have this rise of this other Turkic um, empire led by a guy called Emir Timur, who has been forever remembered in English as Tamerlane, because Mm. Timur was lame. He was literally paralyzed down one side of his body. Uh, He came from a really poor background. Don't have time to go into him. uh, But basically, he's a really interesting guy. I say a lot more about him in the book. But he was a huge and powerful warlord who had captured pretty much the whole of Russia and Georgia and sort of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, all of Central Asia. And now he is smashing into Anatolia. Bayezid hears of this and he raises the largest army the, the Ottoman Empire at that time has ever pulled together. And they meet uh, uh, at the Battle of Ankara. So but doesn't Tamerlane win this battle though? He absolutely he wins. Uh, Ankara is now the capital city of modern day Republic of Istanbul, uh, of, uh, Republic of Turkey. Um, but it, in, in th- at this time, it is a tiny, tiny little village. It's nothing. But, but Bayezid. Basically, if he was up against anybody else with that sized army, he would have won. But he was up against a guy who was just as aggressive as him, just as much as a warlord as him, but he had even more of everything else. He had war elephants. And for the record, um, uh, uh, horses will not charge elephants. They're kind of scared of them. And that's a the problem kind of the when you've got medieval era, the medieval such ancient era versions of tanks, right? Yeah, absolutely, elephant. yeah. They're draped in armor. They got two guys on their back firing uh, arrows. Uh, also, he'd picked up sort of kind of flamethrowers from a different civilization. And Bayezid had none of this. And so Bayezid, who absolutely was a formidable warrior in and of himself. I was one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let, let's get some flamethrowers, shall we? Um, he, he is the only Ottoman uh, ruler to ever get captured in battle. Tamerlane puts him in, uh, basically takes him back east and Bayezid, he doesn't die because he's ill-treated he just dies of disease let's not forget this is a time when there's lots of disease going on 
But this is a critical point for the Ottoman Empire because you've now got all of Bayezid's sons and there's no and clear I, I, I'm ruler. I'm just going to stop you right there for a Go little on. bit. Because something that fascinated me, and I wanted to bring this up when you changed the timeline, because why does the charge further into and just shatter the Ottoman Empire? Why doesn't he go in? He had his victory, he captured Bayezid. Why doesn't he go in further into the Ottoman Empire and expand his own empire that, that way? Well, because okay, I can definitely answer that. So uh, there's two reasons. Uh, so first of all, the Ottoman Empire from that point after the after the battle becomes a vassal state. He doesn't need to conquer it. They have to pay all the taxes now to Tamerlane. Uh, but the other thing is this is happening at the end of Tamerlane's life. He dies a couple of years later from stomach cancer. He was actually about to start campaigning in China. So that's the other thing. It's sort of like, quite frankly, the Ottoman Empire isn't bigger, is nowhere near as big and rich and powerful as China. And I think there's no doubt that if Tamerlane had lived another five years, he probably would have taken at least most of China. Um, he was just, he, Everyone gets very excited about Alexander the Great for winning eight years in a row, and that's impressive. Tamerlane conquered pretty much the same area as him, only he ruled for 30 years and he was also disabled. You know, he was paralyzed down one side of his body. Tamerlane's an amazing story, but we don't have time to go into it here. But this shatters the Ottoman Empire. We now have years, about a decade uh, just over of these various brothers fighting against each other. And in the meantime, the, the Byzantine Empire realizes, oh, we're onto something good here. The, uh, the, you know, they bought us some time. So we're going to, we're just going to cause chaos here. And then we're going to also have, um, and also, uh, 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 the uh, Tamerlane's family, they throw in another brother who they'd had uh, on standby as well. So the, uh, so the Ottoman Empire is kind of, is is basically uh yeah it, this is the point where it could have been destroyed and just becomes a footnote in history but we then got um uh, both Mehmet and Murad the second and these are seen as basically the second founding of the Ottoman Empire they are they managed to pull together everything again and that's an amazing achievement uh for these two uh these so two in, rulers. A, in a sense I kind of want to compare it to Alexius Comnenus here because he's kind of doing the same right with the he's kind of rebirthing the Byzantine during his time before the first crusade is kind of in shadows right and it's Alexis come back when he's not necessarily a great general himself. He does manage to bring back the empire together. So, what was the where they kind of like Ale- an Alexis of the Ottomans that they kind of like you said they bring back the uh, a revival of the Ottoman yeah, Empire again. I, it, I think it's it's a good comparison for people who aren't familiar with Ottoman uh, history. But what you also have to add to this is these guys genuinely had to fight in the field as well. So mm-hmm. you know we're we're at the point where. Increasingly in Europe, if you're a king of a country, you're spending less and less time actually fighting battles. It still happens. You know, this is still the time of, um, let's see, in in Britain, uh, you you know, we're sort of round about the time of Henry V, the famous general fought in the Hundred Years' War. But, you know, there are other kings who didn't fight uh, fight battles at this time, whereas you go back 100 years earlier and every single king of England at some point will have been fought a battle somewhere, Um, you know, and it was the same pretty much around Europe. But these are... The Ottoman Empire, there's no getting around. It was a very martial empire. They absolutely needed to prove themselves, particularly the first half of the Ottoman Empire. If you couldn't fight in battles, there was kind of question marks over whether you were a particularly good ruler. Even if you were balancing the books and bringing in the trade revenues, you also needed to bring in some military success as well. 
Right. And how how does how does do they manage to balance this thing when they when they bring back the empire to I wouldn't say for glory necessarily, but how well, I, I think former glory. I think former glory is fair enough. Um, and so you get well, yeah. So um, if if we sort of like uh, move on to sort of like Murad, uh, uh, yeah. Murad second now, uh, he you know he becomes sultan you know as a teenager, um, and and this happens a few times in a row of like these teenagers, and they are remarkably I mean, mature. To be fair, the teenagers, teenage ruler, it wasn't uncommon in that era either. Like you had teenage kings being, but teenage kings in Europe, you had it wasn't uncommon. It, 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 that way. it, it yeah, it, it wasn't unique. But uh, again, if uh, I, you know, I'm going to use English uh, history as a kind of example. You get people talking about Richard the Second and um, Henry the Sixth, and it's all like, oh, they were boys when they became kings. It's like. Very true, but they did live till they were sort of like into their thirties or forties, so they had time to get better, and they never did. Um, and, and whereas you got people like literally sort of sixteen years old having to decide: do we deal with the invasions from the east or do we deal with the invasions from the west? I mean, that's a hard decision for a fifty-year-old to come to a conclusion with. Yeah. And these guys got it right, so they were really, really smart. Perhaps one of the best examples is Murad the Second. He actually managed to get an, an army to besiege Constantinople. Uh, Constantinople was so important to the Islamic world because uh, if, if people aren't aware of it, most people know that the holy book of Muslims is the Quran, and that is true. But there's also like additional information called the hadiths, basically the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, they are, you, we can start debating whether they're canon or not, whether they should be, you know, for further information, there's been a thousand year long argument over how valid are they. And sort of the excesses of Islam actually tend but in it, there's a story, cutting a long story, basically one of the Prophet Muhammad's um, followers says to him, you are the greatest general ever. And he says, no, I'm not. It is the it is the man who conquers Constantinople. At that point, every Muslim ruler now wants to capture Constantinople. And Constantinople has withstood more than 20 sieges. Um, you know, it's it, it's got double walls. It is, you know, it is an amazingly effective defense network surrounded by on on two sides by water as well. Just if you, he, the Prophet Muhammad picked an excellent target because yeah, if you can break into that, you will be remembered as a great military leader. And that, so, something else we had to mention as well on. is that Murad the first second sir is not the first sultan either to try to uh, nope. Ottomans to try to conquer. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, like I say, other Muslims have tried it. He's not even the first um, uh, Ottoman to try it. But Bayezid uh, did actually try it as well. But um, Murad II is the first one to try it with cannons. Um, but uh, just to get technical for a moment, in those uh, that point, they would mix the gunpowder on site, which actually tended to mean it was less effective. And that meant his cannonballs hit the, hit the, hit the walls, but weren't hitting them with much force. So he's actually laid a siege. He's, this is incredibly expensive and it's incredibly prestigious. And then he finds out that there's an attack from the east from uh, from the Turkic tribes, Muslim they Turkic tribes. They were close, though, to succeed, weren't they? But yeah. But he, Just um, sheer he, luck, basically. That yeah, day. that's what saved Constantinople a, a generation earlier, basically. Um, and so, amazingly, you know, 
I think a lot of generals, particularly generals in their teens, would have said, let's stay here, let's get the prize, then I'm the man. Uh, but he instead, he was incredibly mature and went, I don't want to, but I'm going to have to break the siege and I have to deal with the problem from the east because that's a real danger to my power base rather than Constantinople where everybody's just hiding behind the walls. Mm. So 10 out of 10 to Murad for, for doing that. Um, but Murad was getting a bit tired and so he decided to get his son. He, he, he basically retired and allowed his very young son of sort of like roundabout to 10 years old uh, of Mehmet II, he goes, you, son, can be sultan, and I'm going to now kick back and relax within the harem. Probably he's the not first the one to try, actually try to retire, though, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, and, and he's not that, yeah, I mean, you get Diocletian, the Roman uh, emperor, who I mean, decided in the, in to the, retire in the, well. in the Ottomans, I mean, in the Ottomans. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 it, first one to do that, but I mean, every now and then in history, you get somebody going, I can't be bothered doing this anymore, yeah. I'll, I'll get someone else to do it. But um, almost immediately, uh, you know, within a year, you now get some uh, Western uh, Christian forces now uh, threatening the Western side of the empire. And uh, Murad realizes, yeah, my son, my 10 year old son is not up for this, uh, up to this. I better take over. Again. Because he, so- is, he too is too focused. He's trying to. I'm going to get Constantinople, right? I'm going to go there now. I'm 10 years, maybe, but I'm going to get a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yes, yes. So then uh, Murad dies, and so now we get uh, Mehmet II coming back again. This is his first, second time being sultan. He is still only 21 years old, and he Isn't decides... Isn't 19 at this point? I, I believe it's 19 years. I, I, okay, I'll, I'll take your word I, for it. I, I, uh, I'm I, not quite sure. I'm pretty sure, certain, that he's 19 when he comes first. Look, I, I, I hear you. Uh, you yeah. You've read the book more recently than me, so <laughs> feel free to correct me. That. But yeah, the point is, he's still very young. When we talk about these sultans who ruled in, in this era for like 20, 30 years, we tend to think that they died as old men. But Murad II, he died in his 40s. Mehmet II, who we're just about to come on to, he dies in his 40s. So actually... They are, although they ruled for decades, they're actually dying young and they're not being assassinated or poisoned. All we can say is they're dying from natural causes. Uh, we don't have the, the medical records to know what it is, but it may even be slightly hereditary if we keep getting these. There's three sultans in a row who all die kind of in their forties. We don't know why. Um, so yeah, so he's very young. He decides he's going to uh, besiege Constantinople. And what happens then in 1453 is what's known as the Great Siege of Constantinople. It's and incredible. I want to add that we did make last year. We did make with Professor Roger Crowley. Oh yes, about what a great, I, what a great man. Yes, which I he, highly recommend checking out. Yeah, he's done. He, he's done some amazing books around this. Um, yeah, and he he's done a better job. Look. I th- I th- I'm really pleased when you reached out to me and, and wanted to talk I'm to me about the early soldiers. Always a pleasure. But the, the thing is, when you read a book about the Ottomans, and it's it's actually like this with like the like British history as well. It's like they'll admit that there were the Romans, then they just sort of fast forward and then they'll get to 1066, the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. It's like, well, hang on. There's like 800 years in the middle of there. We're not going to do more about this. Generally, when it comes to a book about the Ottoman Empire, Everything we've talked about in this podcast, you know, the, the Civil War, yeah. Osman, Murad II, all these people, that's usually just one chapter. And that, and they just try to get to 1453 as yeah. fast as possible. Now, 1453... I'm, I'm, 
I must confess, the first time that I came in, actually into Ottoman history and, and Islamic history in the first place was the Netflix series of all things that that made a series really? about the conquest of Constantinople, and I thought it was so good. And I was like, this 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 looks like like fascinating to me. I, I have to learn more about this, and I just it's it's I came down the rabbit hole to the Ottoman history, and I just it fascinated. That's, that's so great to hear. Fascinating. Yeah. I how, how, if anyone has seen the series, it's like it's not entirely accurate necessarily, but I highly recommend. It's a great introduction to the to the Ottoman Empire. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. That that that's 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 great to hear. So the the. The point I want to make is yeah. 1453 is not um, the beginning of the Ottoman Empire. But if you read a lot of books about it, it feels like it is. It's actually a quarter of the way through the story. So funnily enough, in my book, it's a quarter of the way through the book. I want to give each one of these sultans. And it is, you know, you keep mentioning sort of specific sultans rather than necessarily societal changes. And I yeah. think it's absolutely valid because it's from the same family. And and they were autocrats, you know, everything ran through the Sultan that that changed right at the very end of the story. But I think that if you, you know, if you were trying to explain British history through the kings and queens of England slash Britain, it would work for the first 400 years, but it would increasingly go more and more irrelevant. Yeah. Um, but with the Ottoman Empire, it pretty much works. Each Sultan brought his own personality to the empire which led to changes in legal systems or uh, military uh, targets etc so it's really really important to see this and Mehmet the the so yeah so with, with Crowley he's going to do a better job than me but cutting a long story short what's interesting is for if you guys were in lockdown uh, with COVID in 2020 uh, in in most places there was like a lockdown for 12 weeks that is slightly longer than the siege of uh, Constantinople. Just to put it into context, mm. uh, we were under siege in our houses for longer than the, than the people of Constantinople. But the importance of 1453 cannot be understated. First of all, from the point of view of Mehmet, it, it sort of like seals the deal on, on the Ottoman Empire. There's no longer another little empire or another little power right next to him, sort of almost absorbed by it. It's now his his capital city. That's important for him. And this is Inter- crucial as well. That kind of this stops being that it makes the Ottoman stop being a frontier empire and, and absolutely yes. legitimate, for the lack of better words, legitimate empire from now on. Yes, yeah. Now, I, I think we could argue that it's been a legitimate empire perhaps yeah, for yeah, about yeah. 50 I mean, years, but, but know, for everybody else, they're all paying attention to it now. Absolutely. Then, um, for military history, this is the first. Um, this is the first battle that is decisively uh, uh, decided by gunpowder. Mm. So, you know, from this point onwards, we got to pay attention to those gun things. They're getting popular. I, um, can, and- I can picture Orban, who was the guy who had the guns that made, that made for Mehmet the big ones. And it just comes in and it pitches like, okay, guns, big. <laughs> there it is. How That's big can pitch. we make the tunes? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the the biggest one was called the Basilisk. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so we're talking about massive... Ma- I mean, the they were the stealth bombers 
of their era. They were so technologically advanced. As I pointed out, guns had existed before. His father had tried using cannons against the walls, but now the cannons had got bigger and were the, the, the mixture of the gunpowder was more efficient. Um, and, and just all the artillery processes were just so, uh, basically it was the Ottoman Empire that was leaders in the world at that time. Everybody else caught up, but you know, 1453, probably if you'd put any army in front of the Ottoman army, the Ottomans might well have won at that time. So that's 1453 in terms of military, it's in terms of the Ottomans, but also, this is probably where we can draw a line under when did the Roman Empire end? Um, I have another book called The uh, Roman Empire and 100 Facts. And the last fact is actually more of a question. It's like, when do you finish the Roman Empire? Is it the fall of Rome? You know, or is it the f- fall of Constantinople? In which case, you know, maybe we talk about the Fourth Crusade or is it 1450? So lots of different ways. But it's very hard to say that there's anybody considering themselves properly Roman linked to that history after 1453. And I think there's a joke that, that technically the medieval era started with the fall of the Romans and it ended with the fall of the Romans. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's always a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that, so, I mean, that's what we've covered in this time is just 150 years. Mm. And we, we still haven't got, I, in my opinion, I think that if, if you ask your average person who has a bit of an understanding of history, uh, of Ottoman history, they'll know three things. They'll know about the fall of Constantinople, 1453. They probably heard of Suleiman the Magnificent. And most people know that they were in World War One, Gallipoli, and they finished at the end of that. That's three things out of 600 years of yeah. history. And we finished, we finished this podcast on the first one. So that shows you how rich, how much more is going on in this culture uh, than kind of anywhere else. Um, so, uh, you know, is, is there anything you want to add at the end of part one? Is there any other yeah, questions uh, you've got to ask? I wanted or? to ask, where can people buy your book if they're listening? <laughs> where can people, do you have anything else you want to promote on social media where people might find you? For, and the links um, you want to put in the description. Uh, okay, so uh, I, yeah, so for the book, it, it's called The Sultans. It has a subheading, but if you just type in, well, the great thing about my name, Jem Daduchu, is it's really unusual. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Jem Daduchu. If you want to see all the books I've written, t- just type Jem Daduchu. That's D U D U C U at the end. So J E M and then D U D U C U. Straightforward, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, very straightforward. Uh, you could just type that into Amazon. You'll see everything that I've written, um, and you'll see the Sultans there. But the Sultans is available. It's published through Amberley uh, Books. Uh, you can get it anywhere you get books. Basically, I have my own podcast called Condensed Histories. It's a very different po- kind of podcast where I take a piece of pop culture and show the real history behind it. Um, so the politics behind the board game Monopoly, for example, mm. or, you know, how much history can you get out of Star Wars? I've managed to do that. Anyway, so, so yeah, so podcast, Twitter, um, you know, check out the books, uh, all the usual things. But, um, yeah, I can't wait to do part two. Thank you so much for listening. This is, no, stay tuned for part two, which is coming out next week. This has been with that age 12. We are available on Instagram. You can find us on under Redactation You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. If you do have the time, please consider t- leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.